welcome to this episode of the Arcananth podcast. I am your host, Dr. Michael Rivera, and this is a podcast all about archaeology and anthropology. Today, it gives me great pleasure to introduce you to this guest, archaeologist Dr. Sofia Chacaltana Cortez. Sofia, are you there? Yes, I am here. Hi, Sofia. Uh, where are you calling in from today? From Lima, Peru. Oh, wow. Uh, very far away from where I am. <laughs> <laughs> sure. <laughs> well, um, what is your official job title there? I am a professor of the humanities mm-hmm. faculty. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yes. Is the university that you're working at a very big or a very old university? And, and do they have a very large archaeological department? No, actually, uh, it's a Jesuit university. It's, it's old in terms of the Jesuit history in Peru, but it, the university is a very recent, mm-hmm. young university. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And they do not have... A, they have a humanities department, so not specifically an archaeologist mm-hmm. department. And so, like, there are other people uh, working in the other humanities subjects? Yes, definitely. There are, well, there are some archaeologists, philosophers, uh, um, theologists, so... so it's very diverse. It's very cool, actually. Yeah. I mean, do you sometimes find it useful to be working in such an interdisciplinary department for your own work? Definitely. And not only because of my colleagues, but also because the students, uh, because the students come from all parts of the country. Mm-hmm. So you have students that are from the coast, uh, either from the Andes or uh, the, the Amazon. So you have, at one class, you can have students with different... Um, backgrounds, languages. You know, they, there are students that have a uh, mother language, a so, uh, primary language, some indigenous language of Peru, like Quechua or Aymara or Amazonian language. So that's very Yeah, cool. that's really cool. Uh, and, you know, when you're, when you're teaching students, especially students who are doing archaeology for the first time, do you find that, you know, young people are very excited about archaeology? Definitely, because they have their own histories, you know, their, their own uh, histories of, with the past and with, the, with, the, with sites, archaeological sites. Uh, there are, are, and also because, uh, because of regional history, so it's different to, to say, like, to teach about Inca history to a Limenian student and to a Cuscanian student who are the Incas. Uh, develop where was the city of the Incas so mm-hmm. so the, the history is different for them mm-hmm. for each other yeah and then they kind of bring in all of their you know maybe like uh, family or like their personal understandings into the classroom as well definitely because well Peru is a very diverse country and has very diverse cultures and so each of them for instance some of their families and, and even them they have I know, have been agricultures or they have working working in agriculture or, or have farms or animals. So it's very different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, when, when you were growing up, was that also uh, your experience? And, you know, what led you to pursue archaeology in the beginning? Well, because the whole country is an archaeological site, mm-hmm. actually. So everywhere that I, I have traveled a lot since I was a child, so around the country, so wherever I go, I used to see an archaeological site and go wandering around the archaeological site and mm-hmm. just see, I don't know, there is a lot of, there has been a lot of looting in Peru. So you can see sometimes some cemeteries that are 
very very disturbed. So you can see textiles, bodies, and that just that kind of stuff, ceramics. Yeah. So that's that's an that's my experience as a child. That I was wondering who were these people, you know, who were these uh, who were who were living here, or whatever. Mm-hmm. These type of, of questions. Mm-hmm. And in order to become an archaeologist, what kind of training did you undergo and what kind of education did you did you get? So I went to the Universidad La Católica in Peru as a, to study archaeology. And then I did a lot of archaeological digs hmm. around the country. And then I went to do my uh, master's and PhD at University of Illinois at Chicago. Cool. Mm-hmm. And also the, the University of Illinois at Chicago also has a conjunct uh, faculty with a film museum in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I also, that was really cool, that association. Mm-hmm. Because the film museum has a long history in doing ar- Andean archaeology and has a lot of uh, material from the Andes. Mm-hmm. So that was a plus. Yeah. Too. And when you were like going from being uh, an undergraduate student and then you know, doing a graduate program and, and doing research for the first time. Uh, did you find that transition uh, difficult? Did you find it, you know, interesting or, or, you know, exciting? When it was difficult because I come from Peru and I went to the States to study my postgrad, my, my master's and PhD. Mm-hmm. So in terms of language, it was difficult, of course, and adapting to a new city. And also because... Um, I was one. One of the interesting things in, is that at La Católica University, archaeology is in humanities. Uh, so, and then is not part of anthropology. In the states, archaeology is part of anthropology. So that was that was different. So I had to see a lot of uh, theory, which which I love it today, right? But, yeah. uh, anthropological theory, mm-hmm. but uh, that was also kind of different. But uh, at the beginning, it was more difficult, but then it was great to meeting people, meet, uh, study with many people from all over the world. Mm-hmm. So that, that was great. And Chicago is a great city to live. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, so how long have you been working at your current university? So like three years, mm-hmm. three years. Yeah. Wow. Around three years. Uh, I teach at the other universities as well. Broadly speaking, like in archaeology, you know, there's so many different aspects of the human past that, you know, archaeologists can study. Broadly speaking, I was wondering what what broad areas are you most interested in when you are going out to investigate? So I'm interested in very different, in different aspects that I think they are combined. But uh, so... uh, I'm interested, for instance, how the Inca Empire uh, interacted with local communities and how these marginal communities and less uh, complex communities interacted with the administration and the bureaucracy of this great empire. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I study in the Moquegua region with this, the Southern Andes, in coastal Peru, Southern Andes. Mm-hmm. And I have studied there the different types of interactions that the Inca and local communities and local elites develop mm-hmm. uh, with empire. And also I'm interested in like hydrosocial inequality during the pre-Hispanic periods. And I have, I have been doing work in the lower Rimac Valley where the city of Lima is located mm-hmm. to see how uh, 
the water channels that irrigated all the valley, you know, all, all the the desert of the city, you know, the desert where this, the Lima city is located, irrigated all these uh, archaeological sites. And one of the interesting things is that some of these channels continue to to function today. And also the Lima city is surrounded by archaeological sites. We interact constantly, not in a good way, but we interact constantly uh, with these archaeological sites. So, and also I have been doing work uh, at the Kapagnian program for some time where I directed this project where uh, I managed some archaeological sites as well as the interaction with local communities and how local communities um, develop uh, uh, knowledge, develop interest mm-hmm. with their past, with their heritage, mm-hmm. and uh, and their museums and their cultural material. So I have been doing all this type of work. <laughs> yeah, sounds really busy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, well, I guess we can talk just very broadly at first about your research that looks at like maybe differences in experience uh, between people living in the Inca Empire and those marginalized societies that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, when you say marginal, um, are you do you mean people who are living uh, physically, geographically away from, you know, imperial centers? Or I'm guessing you also mean in some cultural or, or social political sense as well, right? Yeah. I mean, what is marginal is relative, right? Mm-hmm. Uh but what I'm saying, marginalized, is related to centers of power, either the Inca or others, other uh, communities or societies that were really important during the Inca Empire. Mm-hmm. So in this, in this case, for instance, um, in the Southern Andes, in the coastal Southern Andes, I excavated two Inca settlements, Inca period settlements. One was an Inca way station, Way stations were uh, this architecture that was um, uh, built ar- along the the Inca Highway. Mm. So they were very. This was this. It was immense. So the Incas, right, had like I don't know, fourteen thousand uh, um, forty thousand kilometers of highway. So they have mm-hmm. way stations all around the Andes. And it was this great institution. So I excavated one at the upper upper valley of the Moquegua, one valley in the Southern Andes. Mm-hmm. And I excavated another one in the coastal valley. So um, each of them had, uh, was, were with different types of communities and societies. And each of them developed different types of interactions. So the coastal one actually did not interact directly with the Inca, instead they interacted through another community, which is around the Lake Titicaca. I don't know if you are familiar with the Lake Titicaca, but it's, the, the, it's, a, it's a lake that we share with Bolivia. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, around, and it's around 4,000 meters above sea level. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a lake that is in the highlands, it's <laughs> yeah. up on the highlands. It's beautiful, mm-hmm. but it's a very harsh environment. Mm-hmm. It's also where the city, around where the city of Tiahuanaco is uh, is located. Mm-hmm. So it's a uh, it's a location where four thousand meters where you can where you can produce I don't know uh, potatoes 
but you cannot produce, for instance, corn, mm -hmm. or you cannot produce another types of crops. Yeah. So uh, the Altiplano region, so you cannot produce everything. So the basic is the hypothesis is that uh, Andean communities send some families to the coast or, or the other like uh, ecosystems and in another like uh, in another how you say alturas in another mid in other areas where you can produce other types of either the coast or 1500 meters above sea level mm -hmm. so you can produce other types of uh, crops so you don't need to so you cannot produce for instance a 4000s what you can produce at zero or 400 or 500 whatever meters mm -hmm. above sea level mm -hmm. so the communities have to interact with each other and they send families to produce to these either different different ecosystems um, different products and they return to the main community or to the mother community and they the products that they were uh, producing at these different ecosystems mm -hmm. so that's what um, that's what you you have in the in the Altiplano region, especially, and so all, so these societies or, or, or these people are are basically marginal to the to the empire, to the imperial center, right? The empire and two other uh, centers of power. The, the Incas had various centers of power, and also societies, right? The Incas conquer, which were mm -hmm. some of them were great societies also have centers of power. So this is these communities are marginal to centers of power, the Incas and other complex societies. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was wondering, like this sort of, uh, you know, these social inequalities, uh, what, how do they manifest themselves in archaeological data? Like what, what, meth what methods are you using to try and, I don't know, uh, investigate those or dissect those a little bit? Well, uh, I have used several several types of methods. First of all, uh, so you don't see at the marginal at the marginal regions, you don't see you know you don't see Machu Picchu or you don't see a great Inca architecture, but you can see some material culture. So one of the questions is you know how these local communities uh, were. I mean, what if this material culture that has the signs of the empire were actually from the empire, from the center of power, or not, or where they were uh, producing other centers of power by local elites, mm -hmm. um, and actually you can see that uh, the Inca Empire, you can see a global economy, a global type of uh, interaction that not everything was intended from the empire, but actually some powerful local elites were um, were. Um, using the some of the strategies of the empire to conquer less powerful elites. So at this site of Takawai, which is coastal, which is a, a coastal enclave from the Altiplano, so from above, from 4,000 meters above sea level, you can see some uh, ceramics with Inca signature, but you can see a lot of local uh, ceramics as well, combined with local ceramics, and also they have different types of um, 
local. So they were uh, exploiting the sea, they were exploiting the coastal resources, the coast. The Peruvian coast is very complex. It's not, it's not only desert, it's, it also has some fog type of environment. Mm-hmm. So during a period of time in the, during the year, is very wet and they form like this small paradise of uh, vegetation and animals from the highlands uh, come down and it's, it's very interesting what happens during this, uh, usually during this, the summer down here, right? Yeah. So January, from December to March kind of. So mm-hmm. you have a, you have these spots of different ecosystems at the coast. So you this this community were also exploiting this coastal fog type of environment, and also um, well, just you know the, the the marine, and also you were producing what you can produce at the at the coastal level, like corn, cotton, um, some other fruits, right? Mm-hmm. That you cannot produce another type of environment Mm -hmm. so and also i use a lot of pollen analysis as well faunal analysis analysis of fauna and Mm -hmm. and uh well some chemicals i did uh, laser ablation at the field museum so i was interested in looking at the composition of the local ceramics to see where the clay was coming from you know right from the Inca empire and the local ceramics to see the difference Mm -hmm. And my next uh, period of research, or in the future, I want to do some strontium and DNA to see. I found some tombs that were really interesting because mm-hmm. each of them have like 36 individuals and is composed of, of like, what we say a, a family type of organization, with, which in the end is called IUS. Mm-hmm. So I want to see if. This coastal tomb, which has uh, an altiplano, so a highland style, which is really interesting and very rare, mm-hmm. uh, were composed of families of, or, I don't know, either um, were intermarriage alliances between coastal elites and altiplano elites during the Inca period. Hmm. So, kind of, I'm trying to look. And with this research, I'm not looking exactly at the empire, but I'm looking what it was happening during the time of the empire. <laughs> you understand? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's quite interesting as well to uh, if you are able to use um, strontium, because like strontium would tell you something, and it also depends on where you sample it from the yes. skeletons, and then that will tell you a little bit about whether people have uh, moved away from home uh, in the interest yes. of like you know marriage basically exactly so i will i will i will be able to see if they were moving from what period of time of their lives right mm-hmm. so and also because we have the sexing of the individuals also um, so we can see if they were matri local or or, or really local, which is matrilocal is the man were moving to the woman's uh, location, or if the woman were moving to the to the place where men were living, right? So mm-hmm. you can see patrilocal, matrilocal uh, types of compositions of kinship, right? Yeah. And alliances, and marriage, marriage alliances. And it's, it's interesting because I'm returning to basic um, questions in Andean archaeology, such as what I was telling you 
the, the ecological hypothesis that was suggested more than 40 years ago that that uh, Andean societies were interested in sending groups of families to different ecosystems. Mm-hmm. The thing is that we haven't found is under what social arrangements they were sending these types of uh, families. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the things that I'm trying to... This type of migration, which is a type of Andean migration, right? Mm-hmm. Internal migration. Yeah, that's really interesting. You're you're talking about like that. You know, it, the the environment is quite harsh in some of these uh, places that these past communities were living in. Uh, I was wondering, like, how, you know, th- th- is there something that we can say about their resilience and their like survival in these environments? Yeah, well, resilience is a hot topic lately, right? Mm-hmm. In terms of because of the climate change and uh, how, in, and also studying, in ar- at least in archaeology, how uh, past societies are handling clim- handle cli- climate change, or different types of climate change, but also mm-hmm. in the coastal, coastal landes in general. So either Ecuador, Peru, and Chile, uh, we, at the coastal landes we have the, the Nino phenomenon, which is uh, which is a phenomenon that happens usually every three to four years and very harsh, very strong every nine years or ten years mm-hmm. where the currents of the of the sea are very hot and that provokes uh, heavy rain in the highlands which mm-hmm. stuff the which provokes that the rivers just overload and they provoke very a lot of a lot of destruction if you don't know how to handle it, <laughs> right? Yeah. At, at the coastal valleys. So also we are studying that. I mean, there is a lot of studies of that. And we have to deal always with that type of, that change. That is a, it's a constant change. It's super interesting because today in Peru, people uh, leave the, the, the Nino phenomenon as a disaster. But we always have had it. Mm-hmm. Right, we always have it since. I mean, uh, since the people in North America, so we and the people in the Andes, we always have had it, and we have to deal with that all the time. So that's mm-hmm. uh, that's something that also we need to address in types of uh, and people and, and societies have have different types of responses. Some were excellent, some were not really good during the pre-Hispanic period. So, for instance, one of the things in terms of Changing, for instance, when I study the canal right. systems, we see that communal work at this type of technology that do not use, at least at canals, do, do not use, well, they use a very specialized technology, but it's a technology, it's a it's, uh, infrastructure that can can be movable. It's very high, highly movable. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's very complex, but it, it's not that, I mean, but it just takes a lot of, communal work to rebuild. So this kind of resilience is like we find in the other coast, other coast. Mm-hmm. Also, what do you mean by, uh, what do you mean by malleable? Movable, uh, like it's easily transportable. So for oh, instance, oh, if, sorry, if, yeah. uh-huh. mm-hmm. so if you have a water uh, canal intake, which is, I mean, uh, canal intake is one of the most complex infrastructures, especially when it comes from the river. But, uh, but with a lot of communal work, you can build a, a canal intake very easily. And knowledge, right? Knowledge and communal work. 
kana do we do we know how many people would have been uh, required to do that like what can we can you describe the the labor well, that would have been involved there is so because of the you so that's something that is also interesting at, the, at least at the coastal channels. So it will be around 200 to 100 people, but mm-hmm. directed by some, by some, uh, have, would have some direction, Ingen- hydraulic engineers, right? But yeah. also you will, you will acquire rights to the water that the channel, that the canal um, flows by mm-hmm. cleaning the canal. So it's important to be present. So all the communities that will be along a canal will have to contribute to the work to cleaning or maintaining the canal. Mm-hmm. If they want access to it. If they want access. So that's how you legitimize your mm-hmm. access to water, for instance, right? Interesting. Yeah. And that's something that well, uh, we need, to, like this type of resiliency of Indian communities. And also the the manage of territory was extremely different too. So we have a continuous type of manage of territory. So Andean, many of Andean communities, I'm not trying to homogenize all the Andes, the Andes of the Prisbati, but I'm talking in general, will manage the territory by spots. Like, as I was telling you, uh, so they will, they will, for instance, uh, uh, make some negotiations with other communities and give them some rights to water and land in along their canal, and they can. Mm-hmm. And that's how political um, political arrangements will will be made. For instance, right. so you will. Yeah. So I will give you access to my water and land. Right. That's a. Mm-hmm. You, I mean, you can have land. So land is worth nothing if it doesn't have water mm-hmm. in an agricultural community, of course. Yeah. So like in the beginning or like along the way, as you, uh, as these canal systems have to be cleaned, it's best to send a, a few members of your group, uh, you know, down, down to the canal so that you can kind of get in there and be in the system of, um, I guess, how, how it's managed and how it's organized. Exactly. And also if you want some access to some, I mean, you can, you can also negotiate how much water it will be given to you. So that's also mm-hmm. a way of negoci- negotiation, right? Mm-hmm. And along the coast, I mean, in terms of resilience, also like you have managing of um, Forest, coastal forest. Uh, you have managing of tre- of coastal trees, of coastal uh, animals. You know, like the leaf of the forest. Mm-hmm. Also, you have the managing of uh, some lakes that were mm-hmm. that were um, formed during the El Nino the El Nino time. So, I mean, the coast is a very yeah. dynam- dynamic environment. That that's very interesting to mm-hmm. study as historical for historical ecologists, for instance. Yeah. I'm so happy you said that because um, my 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 own PhD research was looking at um, like human skeletons that were excavated around northeastern Europe in Estonia and Latvia, and it's a system where like there is no place that is higher than 200 meters, so it's a very flat, yeah. uh, lowland river and lake environment, and a lot of people were. Um, in the past, like relying on uh, coastal or like, you know, river resources, but yeah. um, 
you know, especially like in Europe, uh, you know, the, the big the big story, I guess, in archaeology for many years is is about the uh, onset of agriculture, but on the in the marginal environment in the on the coast, they don't mm-hmm. they don't do that really in that way, and so. Uh, yeah, they, they have always been dynamic zones oh, of like, you know, trade and migration yes. and human yes. development. But, uh, you know, not, you know, there's, there's so much to explore oh, there. Yeah. No, and, and also in later periods, also you have the great um, uh, mercaderes, uh, people that trade, traders, right? That will like mm-hmm. trade many, many different types of sumptuous or very exotic objects or, mm-hmm. or material. So it's mm-hmm. it's a it's a fascinating type of environment to study. Mm-hmm. Two two other themes that you're really interested in when you when it comes to pre-Hispanic Peru is also looking at the questions of like gender yes. and sexuality. Mm-hmm. What what do we know about gender and sexuality in these environments or in these settings? Well, uh, it's a it's really interesting because in the Andes, uh, in difference with the um, with other parts of the world, like uh, the studies of gender has been very sporadic and sexuality, but mm-hmm. lately there has been many, many intents to study gender and sexuality. And also you have to know that the Andes is full of, um, of different types of cultures. So we have, we know more about some cultures by different types of materials or evidence, such as iconography or uh, funerary, um, or cemeteries, or you know, funerary analysis, or bioanthropological analysis, or even like uh, the types of diets that different types of uh, uh, groups would have had mm-hmm. in terms of gender. For instance, I'm I'm really interested in in these types of in these types of questions. So, well, in general, like we have different types of ideas how gender will have worked. So, for instance, in the at the North Coast, I don't know if you have heard, there are these uh, fe- female uh, individuals that have been found with signs of power, mm-hmm. and uh, with signs of power, which during the mo- uh, for the mocha culture and even Lambayeque culture, which is after the mocha, the mocha culture goes around from zero to 800 after Christ. And then another culture is called the Lambayeque that goes until, I don't know, 900 to, to 1400 after mm-hmm. uh, Christ. So at the Mocha cultures, you will have these uh, female individuals with signs of power that have been buried with signs of power. And that was a huge discovery around 15 years ago. Yeah. And people will not believe it, right? Like a woman can have signs of power. Today, we have more and more uh, contexts where females will be buried with signs of power. Many of the objects that are uh, associated with these individuals are comes from the feminine and masculine type of uh, symbols or mm-hmm. or symbolic symbolic masculine symbolic feminine so actually that's one of the things for instance mary was mental will suggest i don't know if you have mary was mental from northwestern university that probably the lead will have more fluid types of uh gender identities so we'll mm-hmm. her, her hypothesis is that the leads can use female or male uh, symbols of power. 
And that makes sense, mm-hmm. right? Because mm-hmm. our binary, the binary ideology is modern. That's in the uh, that's at the North Coast. But then you have another. I mean, a niche culture is just fascinating. For instance, during the formative period, you have some representations of mm-hmm. which formative period is like um, two thousand before Christ to to zero. Uh, you have representations of mythical beings that you know with uh, birds with snake type with the snakes bodies human bodies and, and the combination of that because also the formative period you were consuming a lot of hallucinogenics types of beverage for ritual settings mm-hmm. so you will consume san pedro y ayahuasca that are these hallucinogenics from the andes and the amazon so you have these uh, these beings that are anthropomorphized, with, and they can fly. They can they they can uh, they you know they can reptile. They they have different powers, and that makes sense for cosmologies that are more Amazonian type of cosmologies. Mm-hmm. And these beings are also, I mean, makes you wonder like they, you know they have like a vagina dentata type of um, of bodies or they have bodies that you know are human and you can see the bones and you don't know what they are really mm-hmm. I mean, right? mm-hmm. um, and you can see some I mean the and, and the Amazon cosmology you have uh, bodies that make themselves while while learning how to act as such. And that I think, and the body, the body itself, right? Mm-hmm. And what does it mean to be, I mean, from the from the question, what does it mean to be a person, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if, for instance, Amazonian type of ethnography, that's the question. Humans and animals are not that different. Mm-hmm. They both have culture and you can become an animal, right? And the animal can become a human. Mm-hmm. So it's either the transference of the body or how your body, how you become humanized and therefore socialized and therefore genderized mm-hmm. socially, right? Mm-hmm. When it comes to this cultural history, have you found that there's also, uh, besides from your students, a lot of interest from members of the public or even like uh, governmental bodies? Well, it, it, it's different. So there you have groups that are really interested. Interested. Yes. And then you have other groups, especially of male archaeologists, that are not interested. <laughs> and, <laughs> so, for instance, I am. I was mentioning to you that I am participating in doing the new museography of the National Museum, and we are. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to put the gender perspective to the whole history of the pre-Hispanic. Um, Oh, the Hispanic culture, right? Like, at the museum, and that's—I mean—gladly I have had good, good uh, reception. But it's because of the people that are in there. Because I definitely can imagine some other people that are like zero receptive or like, negative receptive, receptive to these types of views or or interests, right? Like they would not—they mm-hmm. will not see. And the narrative is different. It's either because is not scientific, is is not uh, serious. Uh, they are not interested, or there are no enough body of data 
well, I mean, whatever, right? The, the narrative can be diverse. You, you mentioned to me like off the air that you also work a lot in the area of like archaeological conservation and cultural heritage and public archaeology. And um, I would love to hear more about that kind of work that you're doing as well in Peru. Yeah, so when I work at the Capacnian program, which is the Great Inca Highway program that is administered by the Ministry of Culture in Peru, I work also with local communities. And one of the things, I mean, the Capacnian, the Inca Highway, right, uh, was built on local highways, on previous societies' highways. So the Inca, the Inca culture only lasted a hundred years or a hundred and plus years. So it was the Inca, the Inca empire. So it was a very short lived empire that the greatness of this empire that is that they use a scale never seen before, uh, all the technologies and institutions that was already developed before, right? During 4,000 4, years. That, mm-hmm. that we have the history in the Andes. So they built their Inca highway on top of previous highways, right? But they did it Inca, in an Inca way, <laughs> in a great way. So, and these Inca highways have been uh, continued to be used, being used uh, until today. And they have been used when the Spaniards conquered the Andes. They were used uh, for the during the colonial period. I mean, they built new ones as well. They were used also, um, uh, for instance, when we we have internal wars for the independence. They were they were used. This this Inca highways they were used for the when we have uh, the internal conflict conflict. So the terrorism, like a uh, few few decades ago, and people continue using these mm-hmm. highways. So one of the thing, one important things is to recognize that history of these highways, and also how the Incas tried to integrate it, the try try to integrate the territory, and how that can be mm-hmm. symbolically also a perspective to the country, yeah. right? The integration of the territory and cultures. So one of the things that we wanted to to do is to how lo- local communities, indigenous communities that were along the highway can be integrated to manage their heritage. Mm-hmm. So we did work, uh, for instance, in Huancabelica, uh, which is one is a highland uh, region in the Peru, one of the poorest regions in the country, actually. That uh, so we 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 applied to a fund from the U.S. Embassy. And we won the fund, so we developed the museum there and also brought many specialists in conservation to teach local, especially women, how to conserve their own cultural material. Mm-hmm. And there was a store at the museum. And I mean, and many, many different things. So that, and we put some uh, infrastructure at the museum, you know, textiles, uh, gabinets and everything. So that was that was an excellent work. And also, uh, one of the things that I think is more problematic in Peru is that so the archaeological sites are are uh, considered patrimony of the country, right? Mm-hmm. But when you consider there is an interesting process there because when you consider a patrimony, then the archaeological site becomes you extract the patrimony of this site mm-hmm. that has been at the local community from their people. 
So, and the interaction that these sites has always have from the local community. So one of the things that we try to rescue is that while it has to be patrimony and, and protected by the law, Peruvian laws and everything, also they can also continue to uh, interact with the site as they, has, they have always continued, they have always have done. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also, for instance, cleaning the site, uh, doing community work. Community work can be is a very Andean concept, right? So mm-hmm. it's an embedded Andean concept. And you not only do work; I mean, you you form community while doing this communal work. You form identity. You construct. You eat. You chew coca leaves you know it's a it can be also a kind of party people are singing so we will organize some uh, cleaning of this archaeological sites with the community and we have all that right as -hmm. well so that was really interesting to to do for instance Mm -hmm. and that's something that i i am i am always i think archaeologists at least in the ones that work in, uh, in archaeological sites that have local communities mm-hmm. living around to engage other yeah. their possibilities and characteristics. I think that it's uh, it's really good because uh, I I I think that there are uh, other places, uh, other sites around the world where uh, this kind of approach could be really relevant and really. Um, useful, especially like in all the ways that you were describing of how we can look at the past to, you know, think about some of the problems that are facing people today in terms of like inequality uh, or, you know, a relationship with the environment. Oh, definitely. And also because I think archaeological knowledge is one type of approach to a heritage. You can have different mm-hmm. types of approaches. And I think local communities have their own type of approach to an archaeological site. For that we call archaeological sites, they call another type of name, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I don't think uh, their archaeological knowledge is uh, is in a higher level yeah. or than any any other type of knowledge or approaches to the past. And that's also the things mm-hmm. that you know, are very discussing archaeology, right? So I'm, I'm thinking of closing the show soon. Um, we are nearing the end of the year now. And I was wondering, do you have uh, big plans for 2020 and things that you would like to accomplish? Oh, definitely. I need to write a lot of uh, proposals <laughs> to continue mm-hmm. working. So mm-hmm. I, want to, I want to continue working on my ideological investigation at coastal valleys, but... And uh, another another valley in Peru, in the Cañete, in the middle Cañete Valley, which is uh, another coastal valley, southern from the Rimac Valley. And I also want to continue my work at Takawai doing the the DNA and strontium and analysis at, at the south. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. and also write a lot. So yeah, that's that's all yeah. my future accomplishments. <laughs> do you like to do when uh, you are you have time off, like on your on your weekends or or evenings? Oh, I travel a lot, and then I rest and I read. <laughs> I read a lot. I try to lead, read more literature. Mm-hmm. Um, that's something I think. That's, I think that uh, scientists or uh, should 
should engage in the mm-hmm. in also in reading literature and other types of um, languages. I think I like that. I swim as well. Cool. Uh, yeah. But I I travel a lot as well around the country outside the country. Yes. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, and so, if people want to follow all of this great work that you're doing, or they want to ask you any questions about this interview. Can they find you somewhere online? Yeah, I mean, they. I have my email, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I um, I have my academia page. Okay. But, uh, yeah, they can email me or find my academia page. Fantastic. Can you think of a, a hashtag for this episode? Uh, hashtag Andean Archaeology. Okay, yeah. Hashtag Andean Archaeology. Great. Um, is there anything that you feel that we haven't covered already that you wanted to talk about? No, I think it's fine. I just, I'm wondering, I'm, I'm just, I hope this, what I have said is understood. Yeah, I think it was really interesting and especially to uh, get someone who has uh, worked in, in, the, in the region and, you know, really knows the communities and the sorts of questions that are that are really interesting to ask about uh you know prehistoric peru is really interesting so yeah i want to thank you for for being on the show thank you michael (laughs) listeners if you want to find out more about sophia's work then i'll be including a bunch of links and information on arcanet.com you can also find new episodes always posted there as well as itunes spotify stitcher and anywhere else you find podcasts I would like to say thank you to the patrons who keep the show going. If you also want to become a patron and support the show, then go to patreon.com slash pod. You can also follow for updates on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Reddit. Sophia, uh, I, I wish you all the best uh, in 2020. Happy New Year soon. Thank you. <laughs> Same to you. Um, and I'll speak to you soon. Congratulations for your show, it's, uh, for your podcast. It's, it's great, I think. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, well, I like it. I, I wouldn't do it if if nobody was listening, but thankfully some people want to listen. <laughs> yeah. Listeners, I'll have another episode out for you soon. Goodbye. Bye.